that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I wanted to read that to you because of the way this starts. Now we look at our text beginning today, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, if you notice, he starts off talking about what he was just talking about. That's why I read that to you. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. He hasn't arrived at perfection. He's aiming for it. None of us ever arrive at it, only Jesus. But he is aiming for trying to attain what he's talking before. But I want you to pay attention to that press on. This idea is going to be throughout the text today. It's already come up before, but it's there again. Press on. What is that about? Obviously, that is putting pressure forward. That's what that's all about. And I want to give you some terms that should come to mind as we read through the rest of the text. So I want to go ahead and give you some of these terms right now. First of all, here's a phrase, don't give up. Some of us might need to hear that as we read it in the text. We might be going through something in life and God is saying to us, don't give up. Where We need to hear it because we're feeling like quitting. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when you read about the God throughout the God of the Bible throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, he is not a God that produces a bunch of quitting. There are times when we have to realize that we're going in the wrong direction. God wants us to go in a different one. That's not the same. But a lot of times we get so discouraged, we think that we must just quit. And God does not operate like that. He's not a God of discouragement. He doesn't try to discourage us into his will. He tries to encourage us into his will. So maybe some of us need to hear when we read through the text today, don't give up. Maybe there's something that you're going through in your own personal life. Could be relationships with your family. Maybe there's somebody that you've tried over and over and over again. You've just tried and tried and tried, and there's not much reciprocation of the love you've been given. Maybe you need to hear, don't give up. Maybe you have a situation at work where you've got someone who seems to be always working against what you're trying to do to do your job. Maybe you need to hear, don't give up. Now, here's some other terms I want to give to you that you should hear. This is from, uh, let me make sure I got this right. Yeah, get the right order here. Determination. When you hear the word determination, you might think of people that are successful. Maybe you think of someone like, I don't know if you have ever heard of this name before, Simon Cowell. You know who that is? I think we all know who Simon Cowell is. Did you know that when he was 30 years old, he had failed so miserably at his record stuff he was doing that he actually had very little money. He owed like half a million dollars. And he, he, had, like, he, wasn't, he was even wondering if he had enough money to pay for the cab to get him to his parents' apartment at 30 years old to move back in with them. Maybe you think of somebody like Simon Cowell who was determined, this is not going to be the end. I'm going to ha have determination. Maybe you need to hear today when we're going through the text, when you're, 
You've got some goals that you know God set before you, but things are in the way. Maybe you need to hear the, the word determination. Maybe it needs to become part of your vocabulary in achieving those goals. Another term, perseverance, very similar. Perseverance, maybe you, maybe you think of stories. I've got some stories, and I want to share some of them with you. If I could remember them, I won't work, rely on my notes, but I want to give you some names. Maybe you've heard of some of these people and what they've gone through. Jack Canfield, does anybody know who Jack Canfield is? That's the chicken soup for the soul guy. And Jack Canfield, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he actually tried to get people to publish his books. He tried more than a hundred times, constantly being told nobody wants to buy a book of inspirational stories. Nobody's going to buy it. More than a hundred times he was told this is never going to work. And now (laughs) uh, everybody knows who he is. There are 250 Chicken Soup for the Soul books and over 500 million copies have been sold. Maybe you think of perseverance or determination when you hear of him. Or how about Ray Kroc? Do you know who Ray Kroc is, the McDonald's guy? Uh, Yeah, this guy, he was 50-plus years old when he decided to try a marketing idea with a couple of brothers and developed McDonald's. He was told it wouldn't work. It worked. Do you know who Jack Ma is? Anybody know who that is? Yes, Alibaba. Jack Ma is the richest man in Asia. He's got a value, a net worth of $39 billion. But I want you to know he faced a lot of rejection his whole life. He applied for uh, 30 different jobs, including as a police officer, and even one was to work for KFC. And he was not hired for each one of them. He eventually got this opportunity to uh, possibly uh, go to Harvard. Well, he applied 10 times and was rejected. But after a life of rejection, he finally decided to chase what he thought he needed to and developed a very large, thriving company that many of you know about, Alibaba. Do you know who... Jan Kaum is, I don't know how you say his last name, K-O-U-M. You know who that is? Yeah, it's a name not familiar with most of us. He's, uh, he's the founder of WhatsApp. Y'all know what WhatsApp is. It's one of those apps. It was uh, pretty interesting. He found his way to Silicon Valley. He applied for a Facebook uh, job, thought he was going to get it, but he was ultimately passed over, did not get the job. So he just decided to do it on his own, developed his own app, and then he ultimately sold it to Facebook for $19 billion. Maybe you think of perseverance when you think of people like that. Or how about Howard Schultz? Did you know that he, when he started out, his wife was pregnant with their first child and he felt desperate. He had gone to, let me get this right, make sure I have the right number, 242 different lending institutions, and was rejected. None of them liked his idea of starting this coffee company. But we all know who 
how, who he is, and we know all about Starbucks in this area. <clears throat> Thomas's, Thomas Edison was quoted at saying, <clears throat> let me give you his quote because it's a good one. Yeah, I don't even have it. Oh, yeah. He found 1,000 ways not to build a light bulb. He failed a thousand times before he developed the light bulb. Walt Disney was fired from his newspaper job, found his way to Hollywood to try to do what he thought was his dream, and he was told that Mickey Mouse would fail and none of his ideas were good. Colonel Sanders did not start Kentucky Fried Chicken until he was 60. Maybe you think of people like these people when you think of the word perseverance. Maybe you need to hear, as we read through our text today, the word perseverance. Maybe you feel like giving up or quitting. And maybe God's text today will motivate you beyond that. A term Chuck Swindoll came up with years ago, I like it. He just made it up. It's called stick to And this idea that you just stick to it and you stick to it and stick to it until you accomplish the task before you. Maybe you need to develop that and you're into your vocabulary this word and this attitude of stick to But I want to give you this final word in these words right now, and that is tenacity. It's the word that I told you before when we did this. I said, this would be a good name for somebody to name their child. People are into naming their child weird names. Tenacity sounds like a pretty name, and it definitely has with it the connotation of continuing forward aggressively to accomplish the goals that you have before you. And as we're going through the text today, it quite, might, it quite possibly might be God's will for you to embrace this concept of tenacity. So let's go ahead and go further into the text. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on, there it is again, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I want to go through this piece by piece. First of all, straining forward. You'll see this highlighted behind me. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Notice there's this idea that we are supposed to apply pressure forward. Remember that press on before? Stress, straining forward. Why in the world would God have to give us this concept of pressing on and straining forward? Is it possible that we might meet resistance? As we try to do his will, is the devil going to try to slow us down? As we try to accomplish his goals that he has before us, are there going to be distractions? Are there going to be obstructions? Why is it that we have to be reminded we have to have an attitude of straining forward to what's ahead? Is it possible we might do something else? Of course. Why say it if we didn't need to be urged So there's that idea of straining forward to what lies ahead. And then you see the next one highlighted. I press on 
toward the goal for the prize. Once again, pressing on toward the goal for the prize. All of this is extremely positive language of how we have to use our energy on purpose to go forward for something that we don't have yet, a prize that's before us. And we think about that, you know, eternity with God, that's a wonderful prize. So we set that as the ultimate goal, but as we try to please the Lord in all things, we've got to remember the ultimate goal, not just the little goals along the way, but this concept of straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on to, toward the goal for the prize is an aggressive kind of a concept. It's, a, it's an attitude that only achievers have. When you have sports people in your family. Maybe you played sports. Maybe you have kids in the family that play sports. Maybe you play sports right now. But when you are playing a sport in the modern world with kids, and I coached kids for years. I remember coaching my son's uh, baseball team. And I remember the parents, the, the trendy thing, you know, is no trophies. And if we do trophies, it's trophies for everybody. Is participation trophies. And I remember the idea is you're not supposed to have winners and losers. It's just everybody's winners. There's no losers. And the problem with that is I was playing softball at the time myself. And Paige, my daughter, this with me. She plays softball today still. I'm too old. Anyway, she was playing with us. Stephanie was playing. The whole family was involved. But while we're playing, I already knew the concept. So when I'm teaching, when I'm coaching, I coach these kids to win. And we won. We always won. And it was sad when I would watch things happen as we're playing. And it was the, the parents uh, of the other teams oftentimes were angry with me, the coach that coached my team to win. Because as my players are out there, they've been coached how to throw the ball, how to hit the ball, how to make plays. And, and you watch this one kid that's in my mind right now. He goes up to the plate. We pitch the ball, strike one. Pitch the ball, strike two. Pitch the ball, strike three. But he's not out. Pull out the tee. Set the tee on the plate. It's okay. It's okay. Swung at that ball that was on the tee several times, never hit the ball. He was crying now. He's in front of everybody. He keeps failing in front of everybody. And finally, the coach, his coach stands behind him, and he takes the ball, and he goes, now, when you swing, I'm going to throw it. So he threw the ball as the kid swung, and he goes, run, run to first. Kid ran to first. My shortstop grabbed the ball, threw the ball to first. The kid was out. So my second baseman goes, he's out! And the umpire's going, no, 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 he's safe, stay right there. And uh, then next play comes, and Kid runs to second base, and they threw him out. Second baseman goes, that's two outs. Then eventually the kid made it to third base. That's three outs. And the kid's crying, and the kid eventually runs home, and all his team's high-fiving him. My team actually goes, and we all high-five him because he was feeling defeated. He was crying the whole time. Do you think he ever felt like a success? No. And I had parents... Over and over again, parents will be like, I can't believe you teach them to be so competitive. Well, it's all, it's all supposed to be about fun. Well, don't you know that winning is fun? Winning's more fun than losing. I don't know if you know this, but that's true. 
And these same parents, the, the loudest parents of all, I remember the first year this happened, the ones that are like so upset that you're teaching the kids to be so competitive. The next season, you want to know which parents were calling me, my personal phone number, asking, can my kid be on your team? Winning is more fun. When you're competing, you're supposed to aim for the prize, not do something else. And in this life, it's a competition. God loves us. He wants us to love Him back. And it's best for us if we do. We're supposed to aim for the prize that's ahead. It's something that you have to try to do. And the kid that struggled so much, running the bases and doing all that stuff, I had many kids just like him. Coached them how to succeed. Give them this attitude of trying to aim for the prize. And they learn. And they win. And that's what God's trying to do with some of us right here, right now. He wants us to aim for the prize and he wants us to win. He doesn't want us to fall short. So strain forward, press on, try to get that goal. And it goes further. Look at the next highlighted section. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Once again, more positive progression. We're all trying to aim for something that's beyond us. That's achievable. But I also want you to notice something else that we don't pass over because he says, one thing I do, look at this highlighted in red, forgetting what lies behind. Too many times we are concerned about the failures. We focus on the things that just happened that are negative that we have to deal with, but sometimes we coddle them too much and we're so focused on that, we're not aiming forward, we're looking backwards. But then Paul has this caveat by the providence and sovereignty of God. There's so much wisdom. Look at what he does at the end of this in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So as he says, don't be hanging on to the past. But there's one part you need to. Hold true to what we have attained. Don't forget how far you've come. Don't forget those important things that have helped lead you to where you've succeeded so far. You've already attained so much. You can do this. That's, that's what this is. Don't you love that? I love the language. Essentially, we could put it in a nutshell like this. Don't dwell on the past. Learn from it. And dwell on the future. Aggressively forge ahead for the glory of God. So I have a question for you. What is your goal? You see, the problem is, so many times, if somebody were to really ask you that out in the open and ask for you to verbalize the answer, you might draw a blank. I don't know. What's your goal? How are you going to hit a target if you don't have one? You know, don't, let me remind you, the, the main word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia, and it means missing the mark. The idea is if you don't want to sin, you want to aim for the bullseye. Sometimes you're going to miss the bullseye. You've played darts before, right? You don't always hit the bullseye, but the more you practice, the more you try to keep aiming for that bullseye, the more often you get you're going to hit it. You're going to get better and better. 
And if you don't even try it, let's say the dartboard's over here and you're aiming over here, very unlikely you're gonna hit that bullseye. I mean, maybe some crazy tornado comes through at a weird time and knocks the walls down and that one stays up. That's kind of weird, it's not, probably not gonna happen. But if you're aiming for it, you've got a better chance of hitting it. God knows we're not always going to hit the bullseye. Romans at 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if you aim for it on a regular basis, you're more than likely going to hit it. That's why Christians who've been doing it a long time, genuine Christianity, I'm not talking about just going to church and reading the Bible. I'm talking about people who are living it out genuinely. They love God and they live it out in every corner of their life. That's why these people, they hit the bullseye more often because they try more often. They, they really love God back. So when I ask, what's your goal, can you just for a minute, actually ask yourself, what is my goal? What, what is it? What's my ultimate goal? Because I can tell you, I don't care who you are. If I know you personally, I have an ultimate goal with you. Absolutely. I want to see you in heaven. That, there's no bigger goal for me. I don't care if it's family, friends, coworkers, the cashier at the grocery store. I don't care. I want you in heaven with me. That's my goal. But we need to ask ourselves these questions. What's my goal? What's, what's even in just a, a, a day, when you wake up in a day, ask yourself, what's my goal? Because here's what we have. If you don't have a goal when you get up in the morning, you are aimlessly wandering through life. What's your goal? There is a particular character in history that's actually connected to your history now, and someone told me when I was a kid, did you know that you are related? Well, the person said, did you know I'm related to Noah? And I was blown away. Like, what? Are you serious? Well, we all are. I mean, you think about it. The earth was populated with Noah's family. We're all related to Noah. But you must know you're in this room. So you are directly connected to the history of this picture of this man, you'll see it up behind me, Alexander Campbell. Some of you know who this guy is. Raise your hand if you want, if you don't really know who Alexander Campbell is. I'm just curious. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Looks like a movie star in this picture. He, all his pictures don't look like that. He was a, a nice looking man for his time. Uh, he's, he looks like he could be in a television series or something. He's a nice looking guy. He's got a wonderful history, and the church where you're sitting right now, this history of this church actually springboards off of some of the things that this guy did. The church, the Christian church, started in the New Testament. They were first called Christians in Antioch, and it was a derogatory term. But after that, uh, when America opened up, it was an amazing thing where preachers came here thinking they could preach just from the Bible, just no, no doctrines of man. And Alexander Campbell was one of these people. His father actually was a pioneer in it, and Alexander Campbell followed in his father's steps. One of the things that Thomas Campbell, his father, had taught the family was a very good practice, and that is every day after you've done all the chores, and they did a lot of chores, everybody gathers around the supper table, and after supper, the food's put away, and Dad teaches the family the Bible. Alexander continued the same thing every night, supper time for the, with the family when 
when you can, when dad's home, you got to do this, and dad's going to teach the whole family. But one of the things that Alexander Campbell taught very well is this idea of setting your goals. And he was, he was a, an incredible achiever. Alexander Campbell is a major player in, in actually changing how America has wound up today. If you want to talk more about this, and I think the future may hold some classes where we'll get to, to learn a lot more about this kind of history. It's fascinating. Uh, hugely impacted everything about this country right now. But anyway, Alexander Campbell taught a couple of things. One thing in particular with two analogies. He said, you don't, <clears throat> you don't go to a concert, an orchestra, to listen to the orchestra, and then have them tune their instruments after the concert. You have them tune their instruments before the concert begins, right? Okay. You don't plow a field. This might be a foreign concept to you, but think about it. You don't plow a field. You just don't go plowing. You set the markers so that you know how to plow straight. You don't, you don't plow and then go, did I do a straight line? No. You set the markers, and then you start your straight lines. Then when you're done, you know you've got straight lines because you set out to do that from the beginning. Why these two ideas to wrap around one concept, why did he teach that? What he was trying to teach his family as he taught this, and I'm telling you today to try to perpetuate it. Many of us uh, have gotten in a good habit of praying more than we used to. You know, sometimes we, somebody will tell you something's going on, like maybe you heard I was in the ER Friday night with uh, kidney stones, like, oh, pray for the preacher. Thank you if you prayed. I appreciate it. Keep praying, because I'm still going through it. Right now, I'm not experiencing a lot of pain, so I'm good. But it's, there's some more coming. So pray for me, please. So the preacher says this, and you're sitting there, and you think, oh, I should pray for him. But oftentimes when we hear things like um, a prayer request, we gave some prayer requests before. The preacher just gave you a prayer request. Oftentimes we get busy, and we forget. If we're honest, a lot of times we, we have good intentions, and we want to, and we just don't. And Sometimes we get to the point where, because we want to be praying people, we just, when we're going to bed at night, we just say a prayer. You know, God, how did I do today? We say a little prayer, we fall asleep praying. That's not a bad way to fall asleep talking to God. That's a great thing. But what Alexander Campbell was trying to teach his family, what I'm trying to give you right now, is when you're goal setting, when you're trying to mark your day, get up in the morning. When you, if you want to be a praying person that's effective, when you get up in the morning, purposely get up so that you can start your day off in a conversation with God, rather than at the end of the day just having a prayer that says, God, how did I do? Rather than just that, how about, God, guide me. The day's ahead of me. I want it to be yours. How about start the day like that? Wouldn't that help set the tone for the rest of the day? You, you wake up a little extra early when nobody else is moving around so you can have this little prayer and you can remember those prayer requests that you wrote down that you forgot before. Start the day off. I want to I set some goals, and I want to start it with God guiding me. I want to tune my instruments before the concert. I want to set my lines before I plow. That's the concept. What's your goal? I want to go back. I want to read this again. With all of that in mind, maybe you'll see it differently. We'll read this same text again. You'll see it come up behind me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I don't want to skip over, which it seems like we're doing that, so I don't want to do that. God is telling us, if you don't think this way, you will grow up in your faith. You'll mature, and he will show you. This is the way you're supposed to think. Because are there, there are those parents that think losing is fun. Losing is not fun. Don't teach your kids to lose. Participation trophies are not great. There should be a prize. You should aim for it and do what you can to achieve it. When you succeed, that is when you get self-esteem. You can't hand self-esteem out freely. You get self-esteem when you accomplish something. So... When you mature spiritually, you'll understand God wants you to aggressively reach out there and grab what he has for you. You have to do your part. We're not all going to get participation trophies in this life. We actually have to live the life and demonstrate our faith on a daily basis. Okay, there's more in the text. I want to read this to you. Brothers, once again, he starts with brothers in this text. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Wow! Now, don't miss this. He is specifically talking about people that Christians would naturally follow and think, that's a Christian. There are people that say they live the Christian life, but they're actually self-centered. That's what that part about their God is their belly. They want to feed their own desires rather than God's pleasure. <clears throat> and their end is their destruction. They're not focused on spiritual things. They're not looking at the prize that's ahead. They're looking at what they want, what they like. Too many churches. I'm thankful that I'm part of a church that's not like this. But I know some of us slip into it. It's what we do. We're, we're, by human nature, we don't, we don't always hit the bullseye. But there are so many churches that have divided over style of music, color of the walls, decorations at Christmas time. It's not about what we like. Isn't it supposed to be about what God wants? But you see, what happens is we like something so much that we want to campaign for it. And so we tell other people, well, I like it this way and I like it that way. And then you end up dividing churches. I'm thankful I'm not a part of a church that is doing anything like that. But if we are focused on our own desires, we'll become like that. This is about what God wants, not not what we want. And Paul says very clearly, join in imitating me. Now, that's a bold thing to say. I want to clarify with some other words of Paul from another text. And look at 1 Corinthians. You'll see it pull up behind me. Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
That's the consistent teaching of Paul. That's, that should be the teaching of others. It's not always the teaching. Sometimes you take a preacher and you put the preacher on a pedestal and then the preacher makes a mistake and then everybody else falls. Oh my goodness, the whole church fell apart. You remember Mars Hill Church? Remember that up here in, in the Seattle area? The, the Mars Hill Church was just incredibly successful until the preacher made some mistakes. Now they're all closed down. Not, there is no Mars Hill Church. It was the biggest thing in the United States. No Mars Hill Church anymore. It's what happens. You put a preacher on a pedestal. Might be a, a, a great example of Christianity. But the problem is, we've got to have that little caveat. Follow me as I follow Christ. Or be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So Paul is saying, which, which is what I want you to understand. I do want you. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate what I'm doing as long as I'm imitating what Christ is doing. If I deviate from that, don't follow that. Don't follow me if I go some other direction other than Christ. If I make a mistake, don't think it's okay because I made the mistake. So Paul says, imitate me, as he's given us an example of following Christ. Now I want to read the last part of our text today, starting with verse 20. You can go ahead and click that. There you go. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's capable. He is the Lord. He is the creator. He's Jesus who's been enthroned at the right hand of God, and he gets to make everything subject to him. So, yeah, by all means, understand our prize is in heaven, and our Lord is Jesus. I want, you, I want to remind you of something. Maybe you don't remember. Sometimes we run into this. My, this is the last section of our text, but I didn't read the last verse in that section. I just read the last verse in, in that chapter. I don't know if you remember, but chapters were not added to the Bible. You'll see the number come up behind me. You might want to write this down. Go ahead and click that, Jim. In 1227 A.D., long after the Bible was complete, a guy by the name of Stephen Langton added chapters so that people could find things more readily in the Bible. Chapters are not inspired. The chapter divisions in the Bible, nope, they were added by a man. They're used by us. It helps us find things in the Bible. It's all the more impressive when you think about when Jesus stood up in the temple and he opened it up into Isaiah and he read a passage and he said, today this is fulfilled among you. And then he rolled up the scroll and handed it to somebody. He was able to find a scripture with no chapter divisions. Verses were not added until even after this. This was 1551 when Stephanus, that was his nickname, uh, Robert SDN. I find it interesting that one's Stephen and one is Stephanus. Isn't that interesting? So the guy who added verses was in 1551. The first guy, when he added chapters, that was in the Latin Vulgate. And then when the, uh, I believe, and then 1551 was when the verses were added. And I, I could have that backwards. The Greek was one and Latin Vulgate's the other. And then finally in the Geneva Bible was the first Bible that had chapters and verses. First English Bible. <clears throat> but I tell you this for a reason. Because I believe the next verse that's in chapter 4 actually goes with chapter 3. So let's read chapter 4, 
verse 1 now. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So it starts with therefore. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Because he wants us to know what he just talked about, which means that verse really does tie in to the previous. Therefore, my brothers, therefore what? what? What do you mean, therefore? Well, I'm telling you all of these things. I'm telling you, talking to you about setting goals. I'm talking to you about having this tenacious faith. I'm talking to you about stick-to-itiveness. I'm talking to you about perseverance. I'm talking to you about determination. I'm talking to you about don't give up. My brothers, he starts with my brothers. Now, isn't that interesting? Throughout this text, I don't know if you noticed, multiple times he says my brothers. There's a reason for that. This is, this is an endearing phrase. And you see in the note it says could be brothers or sisters because of the way the Greek is. It's, when you're talking and you don't know the gender, you always use the male gender, but you're including all genders, male and female. There's only two, in case you didn't know. But he's... Uh, He's basically saying, you're like blood to me. He, and when he says, my brothers, he's saying, you are part of me. We are together in this. I'm not just preaching to you. I'm trying to talk to you as a family member who cares about you. He's done this throughout the whole text. So what we're supposed to do is we're going through and we're thinking about goal setting and perseverance and determination, stick to it in this and... and and don't give up all of these things. We're, we should be hearing as God is trying. He's trying. He's trying to, I don't know if you feel it. He's reaching out of these pages, trying to grab a hold of us. Can you not tell I care about you? I want you, I want you to get the goal. And then he says, whom I love. He just said that, didn't he? Didn't he just say, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers? Didn't he just say, you're part of me. We're in this together. Let's do this. I want you to get the goal. Didn't he just say, we're together? I care about you. Now he says, I care about you in a deeper way. I love you. I love you. Not only that, I long for. He, he's, so, he's separated from them. He has this passion for them, not just a love. He is passionately wanting them to get the goal he's aiming for as well. My joy and crown, my joy. He keeps talking about this rejoice. When he thinks about them, when Paul thinks about the Philippians, when God thinks about his followers, it brings joy. Do you, do you think that way too? I don't know about you, but I was here Friday I don't think, Jim's the only one I think I saw uh, out of the, anybody that's in the room uh, Friday here at the church. I was by myself, but I kept thinking about you. I saw your faces. And I even called Stephanie and said, I just, I just love being here. It's because of you. It's not because I'm here staring at walls by myself. It's because of you. And Paul is saying, I long for. You bring me so much joy. That you do that for me. Thank you. And Paul is doing that. And God wants us to get this as we're reading this. Do you not know that when God sees his people aiming for the goal, this makes him so happy. Brings him joy. 
And he says, stand firm. Now, why does he have to do that? Why does God continually have to have Paul telling us to stand firm? Is it because sometimes we're not, we might not do it on our own without him motivating us? Yes. There's going to come times when everybody else around us is going a particular direction, and we have to stand firm. There's going to come a time when it's easier just to do what the crowds are doing, do what's trending on social media or what's in the news, do what everybody else in our community thinks we should be doing, when we need to stand firm. That's why he tells us. After he compels us with his compassion for us, I love you. You are one of my own. We're in this together. We're going to persevere. We're going to get this goal. Stand firm. And then he says, in the Lord, my beloved. He wraps it up in the same little context with, once again, you're the people I love, remember? You're the ones I deeply care about. He does this repeatedly just in this short little section of this part of our text today. I hope you can feel God reaching off the pages of your Bible saying, I love you. I'm trying to pull you up to the prize. So, in a nutshell, what he's saying, don't dwell on the past. Learn from it. And dwell on the future. Aggressively forge ahead for the glory of God. What he's trying to do is impart to us a tenacious faith. I hope you'll embrace it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you do for us, how you constantly remind us of your love for us and how much you want to pull us up closer to you. God, we feel that and we want to reciprocate. Help us as we try to live out our tenacious faith. In Jesus' name, amen.